And the fun thing is your clock slows down, your biological clock slows down. If you've got, you know, your three-year-old uh, child back yeah. at home, if you carried on doing that, you'd end up younger than they are. My name is Nick Nagarko and you are locked into Culture TV. For the culture, by the culture. Let's go. Eamon. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for coming down, mate. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm not too bad, yeah, not yeah. too bad at all, yeah. So, tell me what, explain to me what your role is, because I know you work at Dodger Bank, which is one of the biggest telescopes. Is it the biggest telescope in the country? It's, uh, I guess it's it's a special kind of telescope. It's not like uh, one you, you look through yeah. and see directly, so it's a radio it's telescope. It's a radio telescope, yeah. But it is the biggest radio telescope in the UK, and actually it's the, the third largest radio telescope that you can steer in yeah. the world, even oh, really? 60 years on or so since it was built. Wow. Yeah. So what, what do you do there? So uh, I'm unusual in that I a uh, jodrell in that uh, I normally use optical and infrared telescopes, okay. and I use those to look for exoplanets. These yeah. are planets that orbit other stars, so stars other than the sun. Right. And how's that going? That's it's it's amazing. Actually, it's a pretty young field. Yeah. And uh, the first planet around another star was found mid '90s, so yeah. like 25 years ago. And now we know of over well over 4,000, with thousands more that are kind of waiting to be confirmed. So it's kind of really, you know, in our own solar system, we know there's eight planets. Yep. Now we know. I thought it was nine. Uh, <laughs> there did used to be yeah. Pluto poor, poor old Pluto I'm so afraid Pluto out of the planet game? I'm afraid Pluto's being, so being not demoted it's been relegated so what's out Pluto of a dwarf planet what's it called you got it right so so dwarf planets and we now have two types of planets so we've got your, your bog standard planets yeah. and then other planets known as dwarf planets so what's the difference between those halfway between a moon and a planet in essence, that is part of it. So, so ordinary planets, first of all, they have to orbit a star. In our case, obviously, the sun. Yeah. Secondly, they have to be large enough to be spherical in shape. Mm -hmm. so, so that kind of rules out things like comets and that, seem, that, that are too small. The gravity isn't strong enough to yeah. make them round. And then lastly, they have to be large enough locally yeah. that they're the biggest thing in their own orbit. So they clear their orbital path of all the small guys. Okay? okay, so Pluto falls on that one. It's part, essentially a part of what's known as the Kuiper Belt. There are thousands of objects out there at about the orbit of Pluto. Some are even the similar size, perhaps even bigger than Pluto. Yeah. And either you have- In a the Kuiper Belt? In the Kuiper Belt, Which yeah. is, that is- it, think of a big asteroid belt beyond the orbit beyond, of Neptune beyond and a further standard yeah. and Pluto yeah so basically out there so that's it's almost like a ring around our solar system isn't it of crap exactly yeah so we've got another asteroid belt between Jupiter Mars and, and Jupiter yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Mars I'm a geek on this uh, you are you're, you're as clued up as yeah. I am I think so uh, and so, that's mainly ice that one isn't it that is uh, they're, they're sort of rocky icy bodies there is another dwarf planet in that asteroid belt called really? Ceres yeah that's the largest asteroid it's big enough to qualify as a dwarf planet so it is, it is round uh, so it's massive enough to be round okay. and it orbits the sun and so you know it, it's a dwarf planet Wow. So we've got Pluto, we've got Sirius, and there's a handful of other dwarf planets out beyond the orbit of Pluto. Right. And when you're searching for, for planets, on a, how often are they, are they cropping up? More and more regularly. So what is it? 25 years, we've now got 4,000 planets confirmed and wow. probably as many again that are kind of waiting confirmation. And I think by, you know, within 10 years, we'll know 40,000 planets. It's kind of accelerating several yeah. a day on average. And as our techniques grow and gain more sophistication and as we, you know, as we think of smarter ways to find them, we're just finding more and more. We basically now know that wherever we're capable of finding planets around a star, we find them so our, our conclusion right now is that every star hosts planets they're just everywhere. and is this just within our galaxy you find in planets at the moment we we have in in theory got the capability of finding planets in other galaxies using a technique known as gravitational lensing mm -hmm. but that's about it the planets we've found so far are, are in our galaxy and mostly actually in our kind of neighborhood of the galaxy the galaxy okay. you know it's a hundred thousand several hundred thousand million stars yeah spread over you know, a uh, hundred light, hundred thousand light years. We're, we're finding them typically within a few thousand light years, most of them, although right. using this gravitational lensing technique that allows us to find some that are further, further away. So the way you find them with this, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so you monitor a particular star 
and it is the dimming of the light around that star that enables you to tell if there is an object passing that's, by it. That's absolutely that, that's probably the main method we're using at the moment. That's okay. called the transit method, and that's pretty. It's pretty incredible when you think of the engineering challenge in that. So the most successful um, telescope we've used so far is a yeah. space telescope yeah. called Kepler yeah. using yeah. exactly this method, right? So, and if you think of our solar system, Jupiter, the biggest planet in our solar system, if that was viewed from far away and it passed in front of our sun, mm -hmm. it would block out 1% of the sun's light, okay? So you'd see 1% change in the brightness of the sun, yeah. okay? That's, that's not very much, but it's detectable. The Earth would be 100 times less again, so one percent of one percent wow so that's quite tough to to see that kind of level of change so when they had to build kepler to be sensed enough to see that kind of change and mm -hmm. and if you you know if we could take the kepler telescope put it halfway to the moon point it back to earth and you imagine imagine you know virus syndicate they're the, you're playing a gig in front <laughs> of ten thousand yeah. uh, festival goes they've all got their mobile phone torches shining in the sky yeah uh with ten thousand mobile phone torches kepler could not just see that faint glow it could tell if just one of, of your listeners turned off their mobile phone torch. wow that's what we're talking about wow yeah that's incredible it's it's amazing i mean i'm working it but it still blows me away yeah so so, so this telescope, essentially, it can detect planets the size of Earth. But what I don't understand is how does it, because I know we've, we see a lot about the Goldilocks zone and potential habitable yeah. planets. Yeah. How do they know the distance from the, from the sun or its particular star that it's evolving around? Yeah. Because it has to be a, not too far not too close absolutely right in order for it to sustain yeah. life so that's a great question so there's a there's a number of things kind of uh, we need to know there so first we need to know how hot is that star yeah because the hotter it is the further away the planet would have to be to stay in that goldilocks zone where you yeah. could have liquid water it's not going to freeze over it's not going to boil away right so we need to know how hot is the star and we need to know uh, like you say how far away is the planet from its star yeah so Amazingly, stars, they seem like uh, complicated, but there's actually a fairly simple set of physics. You've got a ball of hydrogen gas mm -hmm. literally trying to blow itself apart like a nuclear bomb, and all that's stopping it is gravity, keeping yeah. it packed together, and you've just got the balance between the two. Yeah. So the physics in that is actually a fairly simple system, and so we can use, uh, we can use fairly standard kind of school physics to understand how hot something like that gets when you balance gravity against uh, the, the size the, of the, mass. the nuclear energy so right. so we know how hot these stars and we know the hotter ones look bluer like a blue flame is hotter than a, than a, red, than a red flame, flame right yeah. so we can use its color basically to tell us how hot it is and the infrared telescope can tell you the color of it yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you basically you need you need to observe it in a few different colored filters, whether it's infrared or optical or whatever. Yeah. And uh, these the the way these these stars emit, they they're very characteristic. They peak at a certain temperature, yeah, and and then their brightness falls in a very specific way right. at any other temperature. Once you get a few points on that curve, you can draw the curve and see where the peak is and know how hot it is, basically. Right. So that's, that's, that's how hot it is. And then how far away is the planet? So for that, we need to know how massive is the star. Mm -hmm. um, and the more massive it is, the more it's going to, you know, the shorter the period the object is to stay in orbit. You know, it's going to have to go quicker ah, around the star, right? So it's the distance between the dim, the time. Let me explain this right so I don't sound stupid. Um, so the, the time it takes for the planet to dim the light or how often it's dimming that light. You got it, exactly. Dictates roughly yeah. where it would be in relation to that, depending on the size. Exactly. So this is what Kepler's laws tell us. You should us. be a scientist. So, well, you are a scientist. Just, just If you think like that, you are a scientist, right? Just because you're not getting paid to be a scientist doesn't stop you being a scientist, right? So uh, so that's Kepler's laws. Yeah. Uh, that basically, uh, the, the how far away the planet is from the star determines its period, the time it takes to go around the star. Yeah. Right? And the further it is away, the longer it's going to take. Right. And also the more massive or the less massive the star is, the longer it's going to take. So right. it's those pair of quantities that tell us. So you take all of that data and that roughly pinpoints where this planet is in relation to the star which would dictate to you whether that is in the goldilocks zone or not yeah once we know the 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 temperature of the star yeah uh, the amount of energy it's pumping out its luminosity yeah. and we know the period of the planet then basically we know 
what the temperature of the planet is going to be, give or take whether there's an atmosphere and how much that atmosphere is going to trap right. energy like we know our atmosphere right. does. So. so how do you then determine if it, because I'm, I'm reading a lot about planets that are rocky planets, which is what they say we need yeah. for life. Maybe, um, but it, it works. We know it works here. Life right? as so we know. Yeah. I mean, there might be some sort of weird sort of gas creatures or... There could be. Water and and in fact, even, even in our solar system, you know, we're thinking about like moons around like Europa, like exactly like Europa. So, so, you know, all about this clearly, but, but, but just to explain, so Europa is, is like yeah, anybody who's a Star Wars fan might know of Empire, in Empire Strikes Back, there's the world of Hoth, which is like an ice mm. world. And yeah. so Europa is like an ice world. It's solid ice on the surface, but we see cracks. Yeah. We see vapor being ejected in between those cracks. Yeah. And, and it's basically water vapor being shot out into space. And we know now that underneath that ice, maybe 30 kilometers underneath that ice, there's a sea of ocean. It's, it's ocean beyond that. Yeah. And that ocean is basically water and there's other chemicals in there. And, and basically you wonder, well, how can there be water? And the reason is because those moons, they're, they're orbiting a massive planet. Mm. Their orbit isn't perfectly circular. So sometimes they're slightly closer, sometimes they're yeah. further away. And that, so the gravity on them is, the gravitational pull on them is changing all the time and it's kind of stretching and yeah. straining them. And that's creating heat. Creating heat, creating the cracks and keeping that water in, in its form. So the interest is, might there be a situation like we see on Earth where there's life on, on the seabed mm. uh, near these sort of volcanic vents yeah. that doesn't need sunlight at all? Its mm -hmm. whole ecosystem is based on geothermal vents, and, yeah. and, and you could have that on a, on a moon like Europa. So there's a lot of excitement about whether you could find life of that form, subterranean life. Yeah. And then at the other end of the scale, there was recent fuss about Venus. Yeah, Venus. Venus, oh, yeah. Oh, I've seen something about what, So explain that. So, so um, you know, isn't Cavi it way too hot? Its its surface is way too hot, right? But up in the clouds, it's cooler. Right. So there was a team of scientists, and actually my colleague, uh, Anita Richards, was part of the team. Uh, 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 she, so she and I are based at the University of Manchester. Yeah. And it was uh, uh, led by uh, a, a colleague of mine, Jane Greaves at St. Andrews. They, they conducted some observations using millimeter wave telescopes so kind of between radio and optical and they detected evidence for a chemical phosphine in the atmosphere now it is still being debated just what the level of that detection is mm -hmm. some some thought they could explain it away uh they they still stand firmly that there is a detection there. It's quite significant and the thing about phosphine is here on earth the main source of phosphine is life. It's not a very stable element. We wouldn't expect very wow. much phosphine to exist in, v in, in Venus naturally. Without. In fact, it's hard to think of what the process is. So what be. sort of life would be creating that? Well, firstly, we don't... Firstly... Microbial. We just got to take a step back and say, uh, first of all, they're doing more work to try and make sure that they know what that level of phosphine is, that it really yeah. is there and in how much amounts. If it really is there, you've then got to look at what kind of processes could possibly cause that. We don't yeah. know of any yet on Venus that would cause it, but it just might be that, you know, there's a lot we don't know about yeah. Venus, right? So, but if they rule out other forms, if we're, if they're forced to look down a route that this might be the result of some kind of biology, you'd be looking at potentially some kind of microbial life this team kind of put a put a, a, a companion paper out to show how some sort of life system yeah. could exist in the clouds and and you know and could it they've put forward a, a, a potential so in theory perhaps right yeah. we don't know if anything like that here on earth though, yeah but they've put forward a mechanism by which yeah who, who knows it could but what you know compared what, to if the clouds are quite dense perhaps might, like bacteria could form around the clouds yeah or and the winds like basically keep them at a certain height and so on yeah. and so forth so i'm i'm not i'm, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in biology it's not my field but yeah. but they have members on their team who kind who of are, study yeah. that kind of area and they've said you know this is not completely outlandish yeah what what it is showing us though whether that detection holds up or whether it doesn't what it's showing us is it's stretching our mind about how life can exist how resilient it is mm -hmm. the different kind of configurations we're now thinking about subterranean life on mm -hmm. Europa, possibly superterranean, you know, above the ground on, on Venus. So, you know, we, we, we're kind of beginning to realize that life could take all kinds of different forms. It's not just two arms, two legs. Or yeah. Whatever. yeah. Do you think it is a matter of time before NASA tells us there's life on Mars? I'd love to think so. I'd love I to think so. I want that um, to be so much. 
I mean, there is, you know, certainly Mars is really interesting in some respects in that uh, we do see we do see evidence even for flowing water, tiny amounts of yeah. flowing water at certain times of the year yeah. uh, because the, the ice there is very salty. So even at v the very low temperatures on Mars, it can, it can for a certain times of the year, go into... Because it can get up to like five degrees, can't it? Yeah, I... I, I, I yeah, I, I, I possibly. I mean, I, I think most of the time it's well below zero. Yeah. But because of the composition of the ice and the high levels of salt compounds in the ice, yeah. its freezing point is somewhat less than, than uh, the typical ice here on right, Earth. Okay. And obviously the pressures also are very different. Okay, The freezing melting points of, of, of water here on Earth are determined, one, by temperature, and two, by atmospheric pressures. Yeah. They're two things in combination. So uh, so those things are different on Mars, and they, they do allow at certain times of year small amounts of flowing water whether there's life now obviously there's a big question about whether there was ever life because even if there isn't life now if mm -hmm. any of those probes turn up evidence that there was once life and mm -hmm. that it was independent of our life mm -hmm. this is the next door planet to us yeah. this tells us immediately that life takes hold Everywhere. very easily yeah. and, and it's probably wherever it can take hold it does take hold it yeah. would it would tell us immediately you know that the, the universe is probably teeming with life yeah because even subterranean like we're talking about subterranean yeah it could quite happily it could not happily it could quite easily be not easily but it's quite possible that they may want to go under the surface a bit more you know on mars that they may find things there yeah it's, i mean it's even it's, bacteria or microbial life or anything it could what was I seeing now that didn't they find an asteroid here from, or they found some some debris here that they believe came from Mars, and in that was fossilized. Bacteria. Yes, well, so <clears throat> they've had to rise back. There was a big thing in the the early '90s, and I think you know President Clinton came out with a big statement. That, yeah. So there are a few examples of rocks on Earth that have been found. This was one of them, the Allen Hills meteorite, and. Um, uh, they have come from Mars. Basically, something has pounded into Mars, sent a load of ejector out mm -hmm. uh, into the sky. Some of that has escaped the gravity of Mars. And just by chance, occasionally, mm -hmm. one of those lumps comes into Earth. And if it survives our atmosphere, there it is on the ground. So they found, and they can determine from the composition that it's not earthly, it's not from the moon, it's mm -hmm. from Mars. And like you say, th there was evidence inside one of these meteorites of, of something that looked kind of worm-like. Wow. And they, they sort of thought, well, well, it, it looked just like a similar kinds of type of life forms we yeah. see here on Earth. So there was this big statement that it looked like evidence of uh, a true alien life. And yeah. unfortunately, since then, there have been demonstrations of how natural processes can cause similar looking features in the rock. So you got two explanations. And in science, whenever you have competing explanations, you, you should take the most boring one because mm -hmm. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You yeah, know, that's the way we have to work. So, yeah. uh, so for now, the working assumption is it's probably a natural process. That's the, that's the shit thing about science, isn't <laughs> it? Because you've always got to go with the most obvious, I know. boring it's, explanation. It's, it's so, and and maybe that's wrong sometimes. But if it, whenever it is wrong, further yeah. evidence will out it. Right. Yeah. So, if you didn't do that, if you didn't go to the most boring explanation, we'd soon end up in a right shithole right? yeah. with with what our we'll understanding would be. We'll be living in chaos. Universe. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely you know complete madness so you've got to you've got to buy it. and sometimes i see results that look very exciting and i want to get really excited about it yeah and and all scientists go through this we've got to take a step back and go okay is there something much more boring that can explain this yeah. and that's that's the bane of our job really. yeah so, yeah so our four thousand exoplanets that have been discovered yeah in the last 25 years how many of them lie within the goldilocks zone well so um the most common, so quite a lot of them, and, and this is because many of them are being found around the most common type of star. Which is similar to our star. Which is a bit smaller than ours. Our star is a brighter than average star. Most stars in our galaxy are maybe about half the mass. Right. And although they're half the mass, they're much, much dimmer. As you shrink the mass, the, the brightness of the star ramps down massively. Oh, really? So they're really quite faint, thousands of times fainter than our sun. And so we see a lot of planets that are actually very close to, to those kind of stars on really short orbits of a few days. Yeah. And those are in their Goldilocks zone because they're around a really feeble star. Right, okay. okay. So, so an, an example is, is about- but would gravity not be considerably different on a planet like that? 
Well, the planet itself, uh, the, the gravity will be determined by the properties of the planet rather okay. than its star. Like, you know, our sun, okay, it affects our tides and stuff like yeah. that, but it doesn't it doesn't affect how you and I walk around. That's okay. that's the Earth's gravity. Okay. Right? So, um, so there's a nearby star system called uh, TRAPPIST-1. Yeah. And around that, uh, astronomers have found seven Earth-sized planets. They're wow. all about the mass and size of the Earth. And, and three of them are orbiting in the Goldilocks zone, this zone where they could have water on their surface. Yeah. And so that's a really exciting wow. discovery. And, and uh, although it's fairly unusual, it's, it's the case that maybe even half of stars of that kind of size mm -hmm. uh, seem to host stars that are potentially within the habitable zone mm -hmm. of, of that star. Would so. Venus be perceived as a planet within the habitable zone if you were to look from afar? It's right <clears throat> on the edge, right on the edge, actually. Right. A, a little bit further in. In fact, Earth <coughs> is close to the edge. Earth is, is, is not far from the inner edge of the habitable zone. I mean, this right. is why we have, it basically is part of the, climate change issue it, it, the reason we are so sensitive to stuff we're mm -hmm. dumping in the atmosphere is because we're we're on the edge of the habitable zone and if we if we warm up our planet too much we we cross that edge that's yeah. the, that's so it's the a very problem. fine balance it's a very fine balance so venus is even further in and the thing about venus it's shrouded in a very thick atmosphere so the the temperatures on the surface are you know three four hundred degrees celsius oh it's, it's hotter than mercury which is even closer to the sun really yeah because it's surrounded by such a thick atmosphere mercury has no atmosphere right Right. So so on so Venus is is where you know is is, is the runaway greenhouse effect that we right. don't want to end up being like so. Yeah, because I've seen that's quite a big agenda of yours, isn't it? In terms of climate change and something that you're quite concerned about. I I think I think most rational thinking scientists, most rational thinking people are are, are worried about it, right? So I mean, I, you know, I think the the thing is for me that I I mean, the reality of climate change in my day to day living. It's hard to see. Yeah. No, absolutely. So when I'm just getting up, I'm going to the gym, I'm walking my dog, I'm coming here, I'm flying or whatever I'm doing. Yeah. The the reality of the planet heating up, the possible like disastrous effects of that are hard to compute into your daily existence absolutely. And, and to be yeah. bothered or scared of that. I know. I know. It's kind of like the people on the Titanic, you know, the hour before they hit the iceberg yeah, or whatever, and the, the captain bar. is probably shitting bricks at that stage and everybody else is going, what's the problem? You Would know? you compare so, that to where we're at? In a way, it is, you know, but, you know the, the, the scientist, I mean, I, I'm not a climate scientist, but I, climate scientists I've met are genuinely, genuinely frightened about what's happening. I mean, they can see all their data uh, you know, it's beyond debate. It's been beyond debate for some time that there's no doubt that, that the amount of carbon dioxide and, and methane, which is caused by large scale farming practices and stuff like that, mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, it's heating up our planet. And yeah, we can still have cold days, but what happens here in the UK or in, in Salford or Manchester, mm -hmm. that's not the issue. It's what's happening globally. And yeah. globally, we're smashing record after record after record. The, the top I think it's, I'm right in saying the top 20 hottest years are, are pretty much, all, almost all of them are from the last 20 years, except one or two, you know, wow. we, we really are. And what, what are the consequences of this long term? Well, it doesn't take much of a change uh, globally to change weather patterns markedly. And once you change weather patterns, countries that might have had a nice, pleasant climate will suffer, you know, severe droughts or severe floods or things like that. And and so, you know, that's you're going to I mean, obviously, hopefully we're going to do things to change it. And I think we are beginning to do things to change it. If we did literally nothing, you would find, you know, large areas of the world becoming uninhabitable. Uh, food production would collapse in many areas. Uh, the, the ecosystems of, of many ecosystems of, of life would, would, would collapse. Yeah. And we're top of that food chain, right? Mm -hmm. we, we devour the animals that devour other animals, devour other animals and insects yeah. and bugs and bacteria and so forth. We, we need it all. We're at yeah. the top of that pyramid. So and the when someone's pulling off. away bricks yeah. at the bottom of a pyramid. Which will have social and economic problems, which are yeah, ultimately... I mean, you know, take your pick. Takes into you know, wars so. and... I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's not going to be good. But I mean, you know, the, the thing is that we can, we can, we can change. I, I'm always an optimist. So, yeah. you know, I, the message might sound bleak, but actually on the flip side, what an opportunity. If we, if we harness 
solar energy, if we yeah. harness wind power, if we harness um, hydroelectric power, if we harness geothermal power, if we, yeah. if we master those, and we are beginning to master yeah. those, that's cheap electricity to do with what we like. But it's, um, yeah, it's well, essentially solar power is free. I mean, it is, you know, we've got billion, five billion years of free power up there that, yeah. uh, you know, we just need to harness it, right? And we, yeah. can, we can harness it on whatever scale that our technology allows. So if we, if we kind of short term, if we do those changes, and yeah. I, I just think it, it, simple, well, I say simple things, but if, if, imagine if businesses like were audited for their energy use in the way that they have to be legally financially audited, right? Yeah. Everybody's got to, got to top up their incomings, yeah. outgoings. So they, if that was true, if they were audited for energy legally, yeah. um, and then there was taxation on companies that, that didn't deliver much profits, but used a lot of energy. And it, you yeah. know, so that, so that they, you looked at your profits per unit energy. And if yeah. that was the way that stock markets were evaluating everything, it would just change everything, right? It would, mm. we, you know those companies that were you know maybe removing co2 from the atmosphere making positive changes they would be our gold chip top companies most valued you know so the problem the problem we have is we we live in a capitalist society but that would be a capitalism just a different form of capitalism a capitalism where we pry where the where instead of money which kind of is illusory right what is money it's a yeah. promise blah 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 but if that money promise was backed yeah. by if if money was dependent on making a positive or a negative change to to to, to energy use yeah. then you know so energy becomes money in essence okay i'm with you and then and then it's all aligned right it's all it's so you all could almost have a cryptocurrency monetized <laughs> yeah. against it couldn't you so i i I, th I think it's not crazy at all to do something like well, that well no it's a big well people are creating currencies monetized on the potential of a business that yeah. is a white paper doesn't even exist exactly it's a, it's a promise to give gold which they don't even do anymore right yeah. that, that got abandoned decades ago so yeah. it's it's it is it's just a trust thing right it's yeah. a piece of paper it's a, it's a form of trust it's a mm -hmm. bond of trust that's what it is and you, you there are other ways of doing this and, and energy is actually tangible Energy is, you know, it's a real world thing. It's, it's a yeah. real form of accountancy about, yeah. you know, what Possibly you're using. Possibly the most valuable. I, it is the most valuable, right? That's that would be what, my take, What would we so. be? I mean, look, look at this room. Like, we've got aircon, we've got lights, cameras, yeah. microphones. You could have all of that. You turn the power off. Yeah, that's it's it. Redundant. So as we get more and more technological, our lives are, are so dependent on, well, always has been dependent on energy, but you say what visible impact you know, look around you at the yeah. technology. That's energy. That's a yeah. form of energy that we've managed to control and to harness. Yeah. And I think we should monetize it yeah. so that businesses and everything are just aligned that way to do good and are are credited when they do and they're taxed to hell when they mm -hmm. don't. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. I think we do need to be more responsible for, I mean, I've got a three-year-old little girl. Yeah. I want her to have, to live in the best possible environment in a healthy, thriving planet, yeah. not a dying, and, overheated. And it's not a compromise ultimately, but it's, it's a big change to our lives. But once we do harness these other energy sources and we're, yeah. we're not, you know, we're not impacting the environment yeah. in a way because of those energy sources, sky's the limit then. Yeah. You know, we, can, we can do all kinds of stuff. We can really let go without having to worry about what impact it's making. Or, yeah. yeah. So. I mean... We're about getting two conspiracy theorists here. Yeah. But uh, have you heard of Bob Lazar? I have, yeah. If what he says is true, they already have this. This is Area 51, right? Well, or, they're uh, saying that they have a, an that they uncovered an antimatter reactor that feeds itself. It's mm. basically, it could power an entire city. Yeah, well, I for mean. For eternity. Yeah, why aren't they using it? Why, why don't they just have Well, they're saying it's uh, alien technology. That's the. Yeah, I mean. Look, so I'm not a UFO expert, mm -hmm. but I, as so I'm kind of an outsider in that sense. But all I would say is one thing that's different now than 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and there's been UFO sightings all that time, is we, you know, we've, all got, we've all got these, haven't we? We've got phones with, with pretty yeah. smart cameras on them. And it's kind of amazing that we're not yet seeing that you know, irrefutable phone picture of a UFO. Well, the reason for, I mean, if you believe Bob, right? <laughs> if you believe in Bob. Okay, so have you seen the TikTok videos? Uh, I've, I know about, I don't think I've, I've uh, the seen videos them, but I know the fighter pilot videos. Of, yeah. yeah. So the Pentagon have made three videos uh, right. public officially. 
which are of crafts performing mm. insane maneuvers. Yeah, yeah. And they say they are operating intelligently. Well, what, they're, they're, not, they're not fully established as crafts doing well, they're insane well, maneuvers, they're, not right? saying, they're, they're lights, which if you interpret them as graphs, are must be doing insane So what, I think what the official thing that they're saying is, is that it's physical, mm -hmm. um, that it's, defi it's definitely an object, it's definitely a physical object, and it's moving in a way that you would say is definitely intelligent. Okay, so as I say, I'm not an expert. I'd, I'd have to see what the evidence is that it really is a physical thing rather than say- Oh no, because it's come a, up on infrared. Cloud mirage or whatever it is. Okay, yeah. so, um, but I would just say, why is that kind of grainy evidence our top evidence in an era where we have cameras everywhere? I, I totally agree. You know, and I think requires, this is, I mean, this I, is the argument that everyone, and rightly so, puts forward is, is yeah. we live in an era where we all have yeah. these why are we not seeing them so which will bring me to bob's story right so if you if you believe okay. in bob so what bob says is that they these crafts that they've created now i know this sounds crazy but this is this is his story sure yeah. um so he's saying that it they essentially create they control gravity the wave gravity waves mm -hmm. okay so when you perceive it, it bends light, everything around it. Mm -hmm. So if you see it from certain angles, from a certain angle, it might look like a donut. Mm -hmm. From another angle, it might look like a, a disc. From other angles, you may not be able to see it at all, depending on how these gra gravity waves are being emitted around the craft. Okay. So I'll send you the video on it where he explains it. So it's Yeah, that'd be cool. But so he's kind of giving this story that they're kind of cloaking themselves in some way. Not necessarily intentionally. It's just saying it's the way the the craft operates. Okay, but it's still the case, isn't it, that they're managing to cloak themselves from pretty much every mobile phone camera in the world, mm -hmm. but not a grainy tic tac sort of infrared camera. Infrared yeah. camera. It's like how come? You know, it, it's yeah. Just no, it's a, it is a it is a great point, and this is this is why I mean. I am intrigued very much by, like, for example, the Bob Lazar story, mm. the TikTok videos that have come out. I find them very interesting. Yeah. They and the thing is, it's quite interesting is that the Bob Lazar story came out in 1990. The way he describes how these things operate is exactly yeah. how the videos that the Pentagon have released. Mm -hmm. They do the two stories do marry up if you were okay. to look at that. Yeah. So there is 50% of me that thinks, is this real? Yeah. There's 50% of me that is also, why is there no real footage? Why is there something that we can't mm. see more clear? The whole, there's 8 billion people on this planet. Yeah. Five of them, 5 billion of them have iPhones or Androids. It's, why are we not seeing something it's more It's a tricky clear? thing. So, I mean, as a scientist, I normally deal with data that doesn't have a dog in the race. That, you know, yeah. in the sense that there's no, you know, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't care what you think. The data is there. You make the measurements. Mm -hmm. You infer the stuff. Whereas in something like um, UFO sightings, etc., yeah. the problem is a lot of data clearly is dishonest because there are people who want to people want stuff there and, to be yeah. So there there may be you know I don't doubt there are some genuine observations that uh, have been carefully taken and the people who've collected them have collected them honestly and don't understand what they are yeah. and want an interpretation and 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 you know that's really interesting right yeah. but but you've got to you've got to because there is this swarm of dishonest data you've yeah. got to be almost like a, a a criminologist you know be able to filter out exactly the, you know it's so almost a different only, skill than i science. would only look at the official data release by so mm. they've got a thing called uh, a tip now right. which is a program set up by the by the US Navy, I think, in the Pentagon yeah. in 2007, which is to, it's called Advanced Aerial uh, Threat something. Anyway, it's been going, it's been running for about 12, 12, 15 years, something like that, where they're monitoring anomalies in the air yeah. and looking to see, find, you know, rational explanations for them. And in most cases, they do. Mm -hmm. But there are, I think there's 140 cases since maybe 2007, which they have no explanation for. But even there, you would say, is there a reason for them to suddenly release all this stuff? Are they testing uh, drones? Are they testing unmanned exactly. vehicles? And they, they're quite happy for there to be a whole sort of UFO smokescreen around that. So exactly. do they have a vested interest well, exactly, as well? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, would make, that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Because then if, you, if you're looking at like 
rivals like China or Russia, you've got yeah. a brand new drone coming out yeah. that's going to be able to to take over so the whole world. So a UFO smokescreen around that is 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 convenient, right? Yeah, so, of course it is. So you've got to, you know, again, that's what I'm saying. You've got to almost treat, you've got to have this level of suspicion with all data and it makes yeah. it really, really difficult then to get to the, to the truth. So I'm not saying it's all rubbish because I don't know that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what I am saying is I don't really have the skills to investigate stuff like that because yeah. it's, it's intrinsically... You know, it, it's it's much of the data is intrinsically dishonestly yeah. constructed, and yeah. that's a very different field to the field yeah. I work in. And it, I think it's either I think with with that whole UFO thing, it is full of nut jobs. Yeah, which and, you know, unfortunately, which, which is the problem with it. Because if there is any anomalies out there that are you know exciting or something that is that we do want to take seriously no one's ever going to give it that chance to take it seriously because Absolutely. it's clouded Absolutely, with, yeah. with lunatics. I mean, to me, the, there are two kind of, you know, if, unless there is a single race of aliens that have visited us and mm -hmm. they all have that same technology, yeah. if it's, you know, if intelligent life is common, yeah. then you might have expected these different UFO sightings, if some of them are true, to mm -hmm. represent different civilizations or whatever that would have different technology. Mm -hmm. Now, in that case, you would just expect that even if one of them was cloaking itself, another one wouldn't or wouldn't care. Or, mm -hmm. you know, they'd either, if they've got really advanced technology, they'd either do a proper job mm -hmm. and nobody would ever know whether they're sitting in a fighter aircraft yeah. or anything else. Or otherwise, they wouldn't care that we know and there'd be phone footage anywhere, you know. I'll tell you what, we've actually got an opportunity to debunk Bob Lazar right now because you are an exoplanet researcher, okay? Yeah. So, according to Bob Lazar, according to the briefings Bob Lazar said he, he, he was given, was in these briefings, it said that they recovered this craft, how, however they recovered it, and they believe it to be from a binary planet system, a binary star system called Zeta Reticuli, Zeta Reticuli, which I think is only visible in the Southern Hemisphere. Are you familiar with that? With that binary Not that star particular system? system. I mean, there's 4,000 of them, so I don't... Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, but I, I can certainly look I was it hoping, up. I, was I can certainly look it up. Can you? So, uh, yeah, if, if we yeah. know of a planet around... I mean, I presume if Bob Lazar is being clever, he's chosen a planetary system that we already know about. Otherwise, well, it, he know. wouldn't... He, well, I think it was previous to the research... In, well, previous to them finding planets, which okay. was 1989, 1990. Right, right. But I did look into it. I did look at... I have... I have looked it up and apparently there isn't any planets around Zeta okay. particularly. I mean, From to what, be fair to Bob, that doesn't rule him out because we don't always see planets around. It depends whether they are, whether they're giving a signal for the methods we use. Yeah. And so we're still blind to a lot of planets. Okay? Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not trying to say so Bob Lazar is true, but yeah. uh, you know, because I'm, I'm keeping, you, can, you keeping you Bob manage, in the fight here. See, right? I, I, <laughs> I'm incredibly skeptical, but I want to be fair. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so a, 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 a lack of a signal around that star system doesn't necessarily prove he's wrong unless it's it's clear that, that our methods would have found such right. a planet. Okay. So back to Trappist One. Right. So there's three planets currently. Was it, or was it four? You said Th uh, three in the habitable zone. Three in the habitable and zone. Four, four others. So seven in total that we know about. So that means there's a one in well, there's a there's a one in three chance possibly that not a one in three chance. There is a possibility that one of those three planets or possibly all of them, could have life on it. Yeah, it's a, it's a possibility. I mean, then we get into all the other unknowns, right? So we don't we don't yet know whether there's water on the surfaces of any of those planets. Mm -hmm. We don't yet know to what extent water is essential for life full stop. We know it's essential for life here on Earth. Is yeah. it necessary for life on other planets? And we don't, you know, how does life take hold? Blah, 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 blah. All, yeah. all the stuff we don't yet know in science about the, the ease with which life might. I mean, people often say, and I kind of feel it myself but i realize it's not a scientifically grounded opinion <laughs> yeah. that it's inevitable isn't it that there must be life out there because hey there's life here and there's lots of planets and blah 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 blah, blah. i mean in theory you'd think that you'd think that and there's lots of stars and and so on but you know when when i discuss this with colleagues you know some of them will point out well um, you know, we just don't know how easy or hard is it for life to take hold of in the first place. We could have been the result of the most unimaginably impossible fluke that happened here. Oh, God. Or, or God or whatever. So, but, 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 you know, a fluke uh, of some kind, yeah. you know, a divine or scientific yeah. or whatever. Right? So, um, and, and, and this could be it. So it's yeah. like, it's like a lottery winner 
thinking, well, hold on, I've just won the lottery. It's tens of millions to ones against I should have done that. Maybe I have a special power. Yeah. Well, we know they don't have a special power. It's just that lots of people play the lottery. Almost yeah. every one of them lose and one of them wins. So yeah. it could be that there's there are conditions that are right on many, many planets out there, yeah. uh, but the lottery took place here, but it hasn't taken place anywhere yeah. else. So that could be it. Even a one in 10 million would yeah. still mean that- That would still mean the universe would be flooded with, with life. life, right? So there are, just to, just to paint the numbers, our, our galaxy, which is, you know, the sun is in our galaxy, this spiral galaxy of, of several hundred, um, of several hundred billion stars billion billion so several stars. hundred billion stars and we know that in the milky way in the milky way and you know practically every one of those has planets statistically from given the ones we already have found Good. wow anytime we try and look for planets we're usually finding them so and then um our galaxy is one of several hundred billion galaxies in the observable universe so Wow. multiply all those numbers together the number of stars is one followed by or a number followed by 22 zeros in the observable universe so yeah it has to be so such an amazing fluke for life to take hold here on earth yet not elsewhere so it sounds intrinsically like get away from here that can't possibly be the case but until we know what it is that kickstarts life yeah we can't rule out the fact yet that it could have been such a fluke. I mean, we've got no measure of 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 how you know how that how that happens. But yeah, I'm an optimist, and I feel like there's there's just bound to be life out there. If you were I, to bet, where would you bet? Oh, I I I I, I would personally, and this again, this is not a scientifically formed opinion. I've got this a is gut instinct. Yeah, uh, I'd bet a large sum of money that there's life, and I'd bet a reasonable sum of money that there was more than one form of intelligent life in our galaxy. But I think it's rare. More than one form of intelligent life. Yeah. In our so galaxy. I don't. I don't doubt that we are alone right now as in by intelligent like something that's capable of some form of technology something okay. we would recognize as so even if it was bashing rocks against the tree to uh, even better than that i'd okay. say you know maybe mastering electricity something like that oh so, really yeah I, I i just feel like you know my the gut instinct are so fought towards it in terms of volume of stars versus planets yeah and uh, yeah but in i mean the habitable zone uh, yeah, all of that, but you know, there's the big unknown about how easy it is for life to take hold, and I've not got a clue, and no one has got a clue. Yeah. So, but I'm just an optimist, I guess. I yeah. find it, I'd find it pretty. I guess I'd find it just very sad if we were it, right? Yeah, just, it's lonely, just, isn't it? Yeah, it's just. Crazy. I really, so, I mean, I'm. I really wanted to be. I really wanted to be. I've been like a UFO geek forever. I, I think and I think I want there to be aliens here. I want them to have come here. I really do. Mm. I know I know it's it's unlikely that they have, but I want to believe the stories. The cool thing, though, actually, it was so I I I th my gut instinct is there's probably intelligent life out there. It's rare, but it's out there. That's my yeah. gut instinct. Uh, I doubt they visited us, but the amazing thing is that we are now developing the technology that we could visit them. And that right. sounds amazing. So right now there's a team of engineers involved in the, the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative. So this, there's a Russian billionaire, he's invested $100 million in this project. He's got a team of engineers that are, that are developing a, a, a stamp-sized space probe that okay. will have uh, a camera on it, all the navigation on it, you know, basically a microchip. Yeah. And they're going to uh, maybe build thousands of these things, fire high-powered lasers at them yeah. to propel them to 20% of the speed of light. So the speed of light is the fastest anything can move, even in theory, according to Einstein's theory mm -hmm. of relativity. And it will get to the nearest, if they do this, it will get to the nearest star in about 20 years after Opposite launch. Joy. Alpha Centauri, yeah. yeah. So, and there's a planet, there's an Earth mass planet orbiting Alpha Centauri. Um, so they would hope for a, like a flyby picture of that planet. Wow. So, so we'll have developed technology. If they, if they, they think it will take 30 years to develop that technology, 20 years to get it there, and then five, four, four years to beam back the images. So, so 55 years. 55 years, maybe, we would have flyby pictures of the nearest planet, and we will have had developed technology that is interstellar. We'll have, yeah. we'll have put our own interstellar stamp. On, on on the universe. Now, you 
take that one step further. What's going to happen in a hundred years or a thousand years? Surely, by it's impossible for humans to travel uh, that like that, though, isn't it? Sure, it might be impossible for us physically to travel like that. But take this scenario: let's supposing uh, we can, we're sending autonomous spacecraft to the nearest star system. Mm-hmm. It's finding an asteroid belt there. Mm-hmm. It's mining it building 10 copies of itself and launching each of those to the next 10 nearest stars. And they're oh, doing the same. Okay. And so every 10 generation, you've got this virus growth by a power of 10 of the number of stars that our autonomous craft find. Within a million years or so, our craft will have visited every star in the galaxy. Every star system would know about us. Wow. Okay, so, and Is that a good thing? Well, it may not be, but but it does then make you think, well, why hasn't that come back at us? Why why aren't we seeing those kinds of things happening? It's inconceivable to me that within a thousand years, we wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. Our galaxy has been around for 10 billion years. Yeah. So, you know, our, our position, our technological position is, is a blink of an eye. Because if in right? theory, we could do that. When, what did you say? A million years? If, if if you had a spacecraft building 10 copies of it, it depends how many copies itself and how many it they get to. Yeah. Okay. So but it, that example I gave, you're talking about a million years. to. And, and how long has our galaxy been existing? For 15 billion? Uh, at, at least 10 billion. At least the 10. universe is 14 billion. Yeah. Our galaxy may be 10 billion. Our solar system obviously been so around for plenty of time. Oh, it's absolutely for, for plenty of time. For back to us. Absolutely. If, if life is, is relative, intelligent life is relatively common, unless we are the smartest that there's ever been in our galaxy or, or the only example of our kind in the galaxy, it's really tough. And this is something that's known as the Fermi paradox. And yeah. Rico Fermi, a physicist back in the 1950s, Nobel Prize winning physicist, basically asked the question, where are they? And that's what he was meaning. I mean, he yeah. didn't know the technology that we would be on the threshold of ourselves now, but yeah. here we are. We're on the threshold of doing that. And he's, yeah. he's kind of saying, kind of really surprising that that's not happening back to earth and and you might say well bob lazar is saying it, it has is. happened right but if we look at other bodies the moon we've mapped the moon to meter level precision yeah. right we know the surface of the moon far better than we know earth because and the moon has looked the same for billions of years there's no tectonic plates no yeah. active volcanism there anymore it's looked exactly the, the only change that's happened to the moon is the occasional asteroid or meteorite landing on it yeah. the occasional astronaut's boot that's basically it and we see nothing else on the surface of that other mm-hmm. than our own probes same for mars we see our own probes mm-hmm. we don't see any anything other else. evidence of anything else mm-hmm. so on the planets that are remaining pristine mm-hmm. there's no evidence of interstellar probes that mm-hmm. have that have hit any of those planets That's so isn't it? yeah it's really it's really weird so that that leads some to say maybe we really are alone because yeah. there's no evidence but yeah i find that kind of weird i find i think that's really interesting about the the stamp sized spaceship essentially Mm. because essentially if it did if it could mine clone itself or 3d print itself whatever yeah yeah and you did that by the power of 10 exactly every single time we can't do it yet but a hundred years a thousand years it's in theory yeah why not yeah absolutely i can't see any show and why has that not come back i think that's really interesting that isn't that isn't because it should have done you would expect it to if life was common. So, so then you've got the ideas of it. it you know, uh, either we're the mo- the smartest, or you know, even we won't be around in a thousand mm-hmm. years to do this because we're stupid enough to blow ourselves up or ruin the planet or whatever it is. So this this idea of cosmic censorship that yeah. it, life never quite gets to that threshold. Yeah. But we're so close to it now. Uh, I I I don't I don't buy that argument. Mm-hmm. You know, we are too close for that. For, for me to accept that that's the reason. Is it the term Plexit that you've coined? Oh, <laughs> so I, I gave a talk at, um, yeah, I gave a talk at the uh, the Blue Dot Festival uh, yeah. two years ago. So it's the Music and Science Festival at Jodrell Bank. And uh, I, I gave a talk uh, on uh, on leaving our planet, kind of about this ideas of, of what we would, what it would take to leave our planet. So yeah. and this was, you know, in the aftermath of Brexit and everything. So yeah. I called it Plexit. So, yeah. yeah, I love yeah. it. So is that based on terraforming another planet? in theory i mean not necessarily uh it was just so the the talk was just about the idea of um the technology that it would take to so i was discussing this idea of these stamp sized spacecraft it's obviously another thing about moving us that's the problem isn't it and this is you you were saying that so um what would it take to move us say let's say alpha centauri let's say that that planet there let's say it's a little paradise in space for example yeah 
and it's got beautiful blue waters, nice rocky surface, perfect temperature, 25 degrees all year round, palm trees everywhere. Yeah. We all want to go, right? Yeah, yeah. What would it take to move us five light years away? I just don't, I can't imagine what it would take to move all of us. I could imagine a situation. So if we, if we think about the mindset of the seafarers of the 16th, 17th century, they, they were prepared to leave their lives to yeah. try and go and find if there was new lands across the oceans that they didn't know any of. They'd be yeah. uncharted. They basically went with a blank map and a pencil. Yeah. Um, so there are always people like that. And so if the technology is there to send them, yeah. then uh, what technology would it take? It would either take uh, a technology where we found a propulsion system, you know, whether it was ion drives or whatever it is, that could accelerate a substantially massive craft that can have all the life support systems carry water or the ability to generate water from, from hydrogen and oxygen, mm -hmm. uh, the, the food supplies or the means to grow food. Uh, 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 As in linear travel. As in, as in linear travel, but once you get close to the speed of light, linear travel is not the obstacle that it would otherwise it be. space and time, doesn't it? Uh, it, it so, so what Einstein came up, Einstein's theory of relativity, he, so working on the idea that light is the fastest that you can go, he developed the mathematics of what that implies. Mm -hmm. And the crazy thing is um, it's, he showed that, that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So if I'm on a motorway where I'm traveling at half the speed of light yeah. and something passes me at three quarters of the speed of light, yeah. you would think, well, add those up. You get one and a quarter of the speed of light. That car must be traveling at. But he said, no, it can't travel faster than the speed of light. So those two numbers don't just add up together. The yeah. math is a little bit more complex. Yeah. And so what that means is that the, the, uh, because the speed of light stays the same, yeah. It's the distances and the clocks that change. Okay, okay. even our body clocks change. So, right. um, so if I travelled ninety nine percent of the speed of light, mm -hmm. just by virtue that I'm travelling that fast, the distances collapse by about a factor of seven. So instead of four light years, it's you know just over half a light year. So six so, months. So yeah, six months. Okay, in theory, if I travel, if you could travel to be like, if you travel basically at the speed of light, and my but clock a penny would slow size down. rock would destroy yeah. the ship if you hit one. Uh, well, I guess if you've got the technology to travel at the speed of light, I guess you've got uh, some other smart technology as well to deal with <laughs> to all that. Rid of some sort of snowplow yeah. ahead of you or something. I don't know what. But um, but basically, and the fun thing is your clock slows down. Your biological clock slows down. If you've got you know, your three-year-old uh, child back yeah. at home, if you carried on doing that, you'd end up younger than they are. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's it's pretty, and you might think, yeah, that all sounds great, but how do we know any of that's true? And the reason- but didn't we, they test it? with uh, like a, the atomic clock. Yeah, I get my phone out again, right? right. So you and I got a, got a phone, probably yours got GPS on it. Yeah. So, so we, we all use GPS yeah. and GPS would not work, wouldn't be able to give us street level navigation unless they made the corrections that Einstein says needs to be corrected. The, they have to take account that the, the satellites are moving in the sky yeah. and um, they have to take account that their clocks therefore slow down. They're in a yeah. gravitational field, their clocks slow down according to Einstein's theory. So, and if they didn't make those corrections, they would would lose where we are at a, a kind of error rate of something like several kilometers per day they would just it'd be just totally hopeless yeah. to navigate streets <laughs> so without einstein's theory so we know that it that it is that it's, it's correct it, it's so in theory the thing we got to travel to the future is not impossible in theory we always travel to the future it's the yeah. rate at which we do it you just can't travel back we can you can't travel back so far as we know except i mean you mentioned the idea about bending space i mean there's ideas of, of like wormholes or whatever but uh it doesn't seem like you can send i mean it's 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 is time right? linear is it just linear we don't know for sure i mean our best models of of the universe and the way it's evolving etc are based on on linear time but it's personal time is personal that's the key thing that's what people don't always uh get Understand, right yeah. when we're all when we're all in the same place <clears throat> yeah time seems to move the same for everyone yeah but when you start accelerating away and moving at speeds to the closest speed of light or you're very near a very strong gravitational field your clock slows down mm. and and literally you 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 slow down your aging so everybody's clock is different everybody's meter ruler is different depending on the your, your motion and so the distances to things 
change. Yeah. So um, it's it's linear so far as we understand it, but it's In not. A 3D sense, it's not it's linear. Yeah, it's not rigid. Let's put it that way. Wow. So time is fluid and flexible. If we could travel arbitrarily close to the speed of light, we could pancake the entire universe. To and like gravity a affects time. And gravity affects time, etc. Because because what gravity is gravity is completely equivalent to getting into a lift. Yeah cutting the cable yeah. and just carrying on falling okay yeah. the gravity is then pulling you yeah and you think what that looks like inside the lift uh once you sort of got over the terror that you're falling um it's like being weightless right it's being out in deep space so yeah. so the effect of gravity is the same as 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 you know it's just accelerating you yeah um but but actually if you if you look at the laws of physics in that accelerating frame yeah it's exactly the same same as being out in in deep space so it, it's it's indelibly you know you kind of get this geometrical view of gravity that that gravity is distorting space yeah. okay uh, and and that's literally what it does so Almost as if space was like a net and gravity yeah. is like a ball that rolls ball, around it. Yeah, it's kind of like that, absolutely. And so yeah. if you've got a ball there, some, it creates a dent, it pulls things. Yeah, or you pull a plug it. out of your bath and watch the water spiral in. Yeah. That, you know, your water is like the space-time, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. So, in theory then, I know we spoke a lot about Bob, but in theory, <laughs> if gravity does affect time and if you can control gravity, you can control time. Well, um, I guess it depends what you mean by control it, control gravity. I mean, gra we, you know, gravi the source of gravity is mass, is so energy could, and mass. If you could, let's say this phone, you took this, yeah, and you could make this operate independently of the Earth's gravitational field on its own gravitational field, but with inside the Earth. Well, it does have a gravitational field. It's just so tiny that it's unmeasurable because it's billions and billions less massive than Earth. But if it wasn't affected by the Earth's gravitational field, if, you, if there was mm -hmm. a technology that yeah. could put something around that yeah. so that it could do 90 degree turns or whatever without having any inertia effects on it, but unless it's... Um, so, I mean, if you think of Earth, yeah. something even the size of the Earth isn't wrapping light around it oops sorry it isn't you know bending light around it. i mean yeah. it does to a tiny tiny amount but yeah. not in a not in a way that makes earth look like it's disappeared so well, yeah. if this thing really is bending light according to einstein's theory it would have to be more massive than earth right okay so and a lot more massive than earth i mean even the sun we can see how the sun you know the first verification of einstein's theory of relativity back uh, just over 100 years ago yeah. was basically observing the sun during a total eclipse where yeah. the moon passed in front of the sun and you can see stars around the edge of the sun it was yeah. like nighttime even close to the sun yeah and those stars were in a slightly different position to where they are when the sun isn't there. Yeah. Okay, so the sun literally was bending their light around, but that was like by by a, a you know a, a, a tiny fraction and, and of a degree, sun. and that's the sun. So <laughs> you know, so whatever whatever Bob Lazar is looking at, it's not it's not gravity as we would understand it. You'd have to invent a, a new kind of extension to Einstein's theory to explain that one to me. Yeah. Yeah. This is the thing, once you bring science into these things, real science into mm. these things, you can start really pulling apart a lot of the different stories that are out there. You can certainly put them to reasonable stress tests. Yeah. And then, you know, if the data is honest, yeah. then there's still something at the end of that that we can't explain. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, usually more often than not, what happens yeah. is the people proposing the data then start going down avenues of conspiracy theories and so on. And then, you know, yeah. that basically they've probably been rumbled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you um, looking at this, like this Kepler t uh, telescope, mm. that is that responsible, would you say, for a lot of the planets that we're finding at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's now no longer operating, but it's still probably, it's it's at least half of the planets that we've found have come from Are you Kepler. finding them at Jodrell Bank as well? Uh, so Jodrell Bank has uh, is, is involved in looking for, one of the major programs it does is to look for 
pulsars. These are the remnants of stars that are rapidly spinning, yeah. kind of almost at the state of being a black hole, but just at the densest state before you become a black hole. And these are some of these rapidly spinning stars actually have planets around them. Really? Amazingly. Uh, we don't know whether those planets are were originally there with the star system before it kind of blew or whether it's some kind of debris left from the detonation of the precursor star but they are planets they're in orbit about them so yeah. so telescopes like the Jodrell Bank telescope you know certainly are involved in looking for for planets such as those but the telescope i use telescopes i use are, are optical telescopes yeah. britain is pretty crap for for you know we're reliant oh, yeah. on on good weather so yeah. we're so there we we look, use telescopes in chile hawaii places yeah. like that and do you get to travel to these places to use them yeah i do sometimes yeah. uh more and more these days uh it's remote so the data wow. just comes to you and you so analyze it you think damn but yeah. uh, but no i have i've Pre -COVID, been lucky you'd be able to get out there yeah yeah i've been lucky enough to go to places like chile the atacama desert which is like some of the driest skies in the world there's areas there that don't rain where it hasn't rained for you know many many decades really? and uh when you look up at the sky there it's in the southern hemisphere so you're looking towards the center of our galaxy wow and you know many people i meet have never seen the milky way you know you have to go to a dark sky in the uk yeah. to see this sort of milky glow across the sky and that's yeah. the, that's one of the spiral arms of our galaxy yeah well from the southern hemisphere you see the other direction towards the center of our galaxy and that is that's astonishing really yeah really, it's, it's just right up there this glow it's you can almost begin to see a sort of brownie red hue of the some of the oldest stars in our galaxy and you can Collect see that from here oh yeah the naked you, eye absolutely i mean it's, it's just so obvious it's incredible wow it's it's one of the most stunning sights you can see in the sky i think so wow yeah i've only ever seen i think i was in uh devon once and i saw part of the milky way once and it is awesome, right? Yeah, it's it incredible. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen it. I've never seen anything like that since. Even when I like, I travel a lot, um, and I've never seen anything. Anything. I was looking for when I went to. I was in New Zealand and Australia just before the um, just before the pandemic, mm. um, and I was looking at the sky quite a bit there to see how it looked different, but. Yeah, you'd see it from there, but you'd have to go to a dark site if you're in the big cities or yeah, whatever. No, that's, you see yeah, anything, that's the yeah. problem. So you'd yeah. have to, yeah, go out in the sticks a bit. But uh, yeah, it's worth if you, if you get a chance to, if you're down in the southern hemisphere, give yeah. it give it a go again because if you get a dark sky and you look up, man, it's it's incredible. Really? It really is. I, I, you know, I'm I've been in the business for decades and I still when I see that site, it's, it's still blown it's away because you're just thinking that that glow yeah. is billions of stars wow. it's like the next it's a dust but it's not actually a yeah, dust it's yeah. each one of them is a well and even better towards the center of the galaxy you see like uh, the glow in in between it it's like cut in two by this sort of band of blackness and that is dust that's dust between us and the galaxy confined to a very narrow plane of our yeah. galaxy and you can see it clearly it's wow. like you know it's been backlit by billions of stars in the center of our galaxy it's, it's mind-blowing it really is wow yeah so how rapid is the technology that you guys are using developing incredibly rapidly not just on the engineering side like telescopes like kepler and that but also on the computing side side uh, now the big thing we're using things like machine learning techniques yeah. art, you know, kind of forms of artificial intelligence because we deal with massive massive data sets basically we we're using big telescopes to monitor billions of stars every night and then you're know, using computer algorithms to to uh, make accurate measurements of every single one of those stars wow. and looking for the, sig the kind of signals that might tell us this planet. So that's, it's, it's something that would have been, you know, next to impossible, you know, only a short time ago. And now it's kind of routine. What uh, do you think it's going to look like in 20 years? I think, I think the, the biggest change actually, I think is going to be not so much, f we'll still be finding more and more new planets, but we'll also be, those planets we already know about, we'll be probing their atmospheres. We're already beginning to do this. I've got yeah. a team at Manchester which is doing this a bit, but we'll be doing it much more, perhaps more towards Earth-like planets, right. looking at their atmospheres, finding out what chemicals are in those atmospheres. Yeah. And when you step back and think about it, you know, we're just, like that transit method, mm -hmm. you're not seeing the planet. You're yeah. just seeing that it makes a dip in the light from, yeah. from its sun. 
And, and yet, using basically the same technique, you can tell whether it has an atmosphere, whether there's water vapor or yeah. something else in the atmosphere. You see what, what, what's in the atmosphere. Yeah. That's, it's amazing, really. Yeah. We're not even seeing the planet, and yet we can tell that. And that's how they're getting the data, which is giving like uh, artists the ability to give a design of what it may look like on there. Yeah, once once we got an idea of the mass of the planet and the size of the planet, and so the we composition, know, et cetera. Yeah, then we get to know the density of the planet. And we'll know whether it's a, a largely a ball of gas like Jupiter or whether it's a rocky planet. Once you know the density, you know whether it's like a rocky planet or yeah. whether you can, you know, they, they are quite different in terms of density. A lot of planets are kind of in between and so they're hard to tell. Some of them might be gassy, some of them might be rocky. Yeah. You know, that's that's still an area where we're still trying to figure things out. But if something has an average density of four grams per cubic centimetre, mm -hmm. we know it's an Earth-like planet. Yeah. If it's one gram per cubic centimetre, we know it's a Jupiter-like planet. So right. that's when we actually start to know, does it have a solid surface? Mm -hmm. And we can probe its atmosphere. Is, is is the atmosphere anything like Earth? At the moment, the planets we tend to look at are the bigger planets because yeah. that's where our sensitivity is. Yeah. But in, you ask me about 20, 30 years' time, I think we'll be looking at Earth-type planetary atmospheres. In fact, in a few months' time, the James Webb Space Telescope, Hubble Space Telescope's yeah. replacement is going up, and that will begin to do that kind of work on some of the very nearest And will you be working on that data once it comes I, I very much hope so, but it's yeah. pretty tough to, to to get a proposal on that telescope in the early days. So Is at it? the moment I'm using, uh, I'm collaborating with colleagues of mine in, in Thailand. We've got a network, global network of telescopes yeah. that we're, we're doing this from the ground. Um, but yeah, like everybody else, I'm going to be making telescope proposals, including I'm sure on JWST for for time to get that stuff. So I hope it's, uh, it's going to be around for quite a while. It's going to be pretty exciting. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Eamon, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. It's been fantastic, Nick. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers.